Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame. I almost forgot my name, and I am your host. <laughs> Today, we are talking to Ben Morosky. Ben is an LA Drama Critics Circle Award nominated writer and actor. His plays have garnered numerous Los Angeles Theater Awards and nominations. His first L.A.-produced play, The Vicious Minute, recounted his years-long battle with self-injury after being raised in a cult. Upcoming acting roles include the forthcoming short films Admitted and Discharged, which he also wrote and produced, both of which shed light on the current state of the American mental health care system and the vulnerable people it affects. Okay, hold on to your seats, ladies and gentlemen. Ben is amazing. And I just want to say for the record, for those of you who have been listening to this podcast for two seasons, I really didn't know he was in a cult. (laughs) I found him because he's an amazing self-injury advocate and mental health advocate. And it turned out that he had grown up in a cult. So just for those of you who have started to wonder if I have a cult obsession I cannot confirm or deny, but I did not know about this one. So (laughs) anyway, the point being, Ben is amazing. He does amazing work in the arena of self-injury. His story is so gripping, and we tried to keep it digestible in a way that uh, would really speak to anyone who's ever struggled with any type of addiction, depression, wanting to hurt themselves in any way, shape, or form. I hope that you leave this episode knowing that mental illness or being reminded that mental illness does not look or sound or act in one specific way, that it doesn't have to fit in a box, that that self-injury does not need to be a 13-year-old girl who is having angst. And I really just appreciated how Ben was able to show us that and to highlight how he has been able to grow out of those detrimental coping skills and what he's been able to do for his mental health. So without further ado, I give you Ben. All right, episode 51. Let's do this. Ben, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, uh, and thanks for reaching out. Yeah, yeah. How's your quarantine going? Yeah, it's going. I work from home, so I've been able to keep, uh, you know, it's funny. Yes, it's some semblance of the same schedule, but at the same time, there's just such a different energy in the world right now that I think think I made the mistake of thinking my life was going to stay the same just because I work from home, you know? And then it's like, wow, what's all this building up inside of me that feels weird, you know? Yes. No, I totally relate to that because I work for, well, I have an office outside the house, but I also, you know, mostly I can work from home and it just, and I go to school and so I do work on my, but there's something different in the world. It feels so different. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I do closed captioning for live TV, so I'm. It's all doing the closed captioning for for lo- a lot of local news stations and stuff. So most of the news, everything's being filtered through the lens of coronavirus right now. So it's just like inundated on all fronts. So uh, as everyone is, as everyone is, of course. But my work also happens to be. So yeah, but overall good. Overall good. You guys just got a. You just guys just got a dog, right? 
Yeah, three-year-old English bulldog rescue. Yeah, so she's a bit of a project, but uh, we're we're excited. And I've never personally, uh, I mean, I had dogs growing up, but this is my first dog as a uh, gainfully employed adult. So welcome. Yeah, yeah welcome thank to- you, thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. So I I found you um, online and you you did a podcast with a friend of yours and a story, you know, your story is around self-injury and uh, something I really wanted to talk about on this podcast and from a male perspective too, which is, is um, I'm not as, as commonly talked about. It's probably very common. It's just not as commonly talked about. Yeah. I think statistically it's, uh, I think the rough statistics are 60, 40 female to male. So it's there, there, there are a lot of, um, a lot. yeah, it's, it's obviously stereotypically viewed as much more female teenager kind of, um, thing that people deal with, but it's the, the statistics are actually fairly even. So it's definitely interesting. There you go. And that, that's exactly, you know, I, there, I have a, a bunch of stories on this podcast that talk about things that men experience that are, you know, stuff around the Me Too movement, things that are typically talked about from a female perspective that I really wanted to find men that were willing to talk about. So I I'm, thank you for being here and doing that. And tell me a little bit about where you grew up. Your dad uh, was a professional football player and, and, and a little bit about your family. Yeah. So my parents are high school sweethearts. You're from, you grew up in Northern California. I did. Or, yeah. Or spent time in Northern California. Yeah. yeah, yeah the I Bay listened area. to the first episode of the podcast and I was like, oh yeah. My parents grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, they're from Novato and uh, we're high school sweethearts. My dad played football in the NFL for eight seasons. Uh, he was a backup quarterback and I have two older brothers. They were both born when my dad was playing. My 49er? oldest brother, he played for the 49ers for one season. Yeah. Yeah. He backed up Joe Montana through Jerry Rice, a touchdown pass. Uh, awesome. Yeah. So, so he played his first six years in Atlanta for the Falcons. My oldest brother was born there. Then he played in Houston when the Oilers were still a thing, played for the Oilers for a season. My brother, Will, was born in Houston. And then he played for the 49ers for a season. And then I was born after that. And uh, he retired. And my parents moved back to Davis, California, where I grew up. Uh, my dad had done his undergrad there and played football there and, and went back to get his master's and start coaching. So when my dad, I think around his uh, his rookie season in the NFL, he and my mom became born-again Christians. And so when they came back to Davis, uh, they were looking for a church. That had and, to have been hard on the on the NFL road. Was it like, did they see something in the it going on or how, how did, do you have any idea like what starts triggered that? Their conversion to Christianity or? The, the, you know, they, it was during his rookie season, right? And they become born again Christians. I mean, during a rookie season, there's lots of stuff you can get involved in that isn't, isn't that, what do you think led or drew them in that direction? You know, I, I feel like I would be guessing cause I, I just haven't talked to them about that in a while, but I do know that there was and and still is a large evangelical Christian community in professional sports. So there is, there's a, there were Christian guys on the team. There were always guys who were professing Christians on the teams. Got it. Okay. Um, and that sort of thing. So there's definitely, that is like a, a part of the culture of the NFL as I understand it and, and has been for, for a long time. So 
so there was there was that sort of um, portion of, of people within the sport. Got it. Okay. Okay. I'm picturing ballers. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, yeah. Like, exactly. Right. I, like, so you go to the yeah. yeah. Right. You go to yeah. the NFL and you you find Jesus. I'm not sure. I that's not the that's not the road I would have pictured. I know, and I think it's still fairly obviously it's not the majority, and yeah, so it's definitely still a fairly unique path, I think. But they uh, and neither of them were raised religious um, particularly, so they were church shopping when they got to Davis and tried a number of places and found a this place called Grace Valley Christian Center. And I was born and they started going there. And yeah, and, and we were there from basically when I was born, we were in Davis and, and going to the to Grace Valley from when I was born up until uh, I was 21. Okay. And you were born in 88? 88, yeah. 88, okay. And uh, tell me about, so that this Grace Valley Christian Center this was a, a unique place and not one would say it wasn't your average born again Christian church. Is that? Yeah, it? it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting place because it, it has this facade of, of definitely being your average, you know, Christian place. It's definitely, I think if you, if you visited there once, you'd be like, oh, this is a bit intense, you know, cause it's, uh, it's definitely, so it started by the pastor. He was called by God and started this church in the late 70s in Davis. And so it's his church. It's not it's non-denominational and everything runs through him. There are elders, deacons, whatever your word you want to use. Um, and but they're all under him and the buck stops with him. And it, so so a service is pretty intense as far as like the the sermon will be 45 minutes to an hour long and be like very, everyone's taking notes and it's very much uh, like, let's study the Bible. And that's what really drew my parents to it initially. Two things. One was the sort of intense seeming Bible study and like really getting in there and like understanding what it's all about. And then the other thing that's really attractive about Grace Valley is People are genuinely nice. I mean, I, I remember once we left and, and the girl I was dating and I, at the time, we, we went to other churches to, to just, you know, it's ingrained. So finding another church and uh, basically every single church we went to, we were, we could have been ghosts, you know, people don't pay you any attention and everyone's there. And I, I don't mean that in, in an overly negative way, but it was definitely like, okay, so this, so I could see the appeal of somewhere like Grace Valley, where people are the first time someone shows up, people are asking them over to lunch like that day, you know, in genuinely interested in them. And again, it, it's not, it's, it's funny. It's like, it kind of sounds like it's like, it's not like get out, you know, where it's like <laughs> come into our, you know, yeah, yeah, like right, it, right. It's, it's not a fake sense of, yeah, yeah, fatality or like people are being forced to do it. It's, uh, People taking a genuine interest. Um, so that that was also, I think, attractive to my parents was people who were interested in them and, and their lives. Those two things make complete sense. I mean, if you want to learn learn more and be closer to the book and understand and, and also be with friendly people who care about you, those that, that, that those, that's not a long shot. So that, that makes sense. It's a great pitch, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's so a great pitch. What went wrong for lack of a better word so over a course of time as you stay there you 
oh man, yeah, this take you new members take a new member class where you're kind of okay, okay, you're kind of introduced to the way that Grace Valley teaches the Bible. Granted, I was born into it, so I never had to take the new members class. And then you, 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 at some point you become a member and that's like signing, you sign something and they have, there's always, when people have finished the new members class, there'll be like a, it'll be part of a church service and people are introduced as new members and, but they, they treat the membership at the church like a marriage. Okay. Like it's a binding contract. Okay. And so over the course of years, you and my mom and I talk about this a lot, but you, your friend circle outside the church becomes smaller and smaller. When I went from kindergarten to fourth grade, I went to public schools. And then when I was in going into fifth grade, the church started a school that was K through ninth. And so everyone was pulled out of public school and went to the church school. So from fifth grade to ninth grade, I was spending more waking hours on church property than I was at home. I lost all my friends, you know, from from public school and and not because just because, you know, obviously when you're a kid, you're being driven by your parents places and right, life happens. And you're and you're friends with who you're around. But if the only people you're around is people from the church, again, it's like the circle shrinks. It's not a cult in the sense of like people are still in the community. You know, my dad was a football coach at UC Davis. There are a lot of, you know, doctors, lawyers, like prominent community people in the church. But you're, there's lots of encouragement to do things the church's way and not, it's, it's very much a kind of place where it's like, well, we didn't tell you, you couldn't do that. And it's like, well, you, yeah, I mean, no, yes, there is. <laughs> right. But no, you, you didn't. sure didn't, you know, you sure mentioned exactly, how you yeah. didn't like it. Right. Right. Yeah. And then at, at the base level, and this is the stuff I've gotten away from because I, and I, you know, I just have a, a bit of a more difficult time recalling it because it's been a few years now, thank God that we've been out, but, but it's definitely a very much a, so it's, it's evangelical Christianity and it's very much um, original sin. Everyone's a sinner um, and a very much like guilt and shame based environment. So, and a lot of like, don't trust your emotions. Don't trust your thoughts you know, the devil's going to put bad thoughts in your head. And while you can't control that, it's definitely up to you whether you choose to entertain them or not, you know. So that kind of mentality definitely leaves the door open to then be like, well, then you tell me, you know, we'll tell you what's right and what's wrong. Right, right. Um, And that sort of thing. What did you think about God when you were a kid? Like, what were your... What were your thoughts about what God was or what Jesus was, what religion was? Did you feel like, was there any place where you felt like you were loved by God, where you, this, like, even though that as long as you didn't do these things that you were okay, or was it like, did you leave with this idea? Like I have this loving community, I have this loving God, but if I do these things, it's bad. Or is it more like, no, it's, like I'm all bad. I'm I'm all original sin. I'm all like was there was there an upside? I mean, I think there there was definitely an upside in a certain sense because I mean, it's all I knew. You know, I was born into it. So it's the community that you're raised in. So it was just the we're like God is love, but what does love look like? You know, love looks like love from a parent looks like disciplining you physically. 
You know right. what I mean? Okay. 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 Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Love from God means, you know, God's wrath on the world is a form of his love, you know? Right, 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 like, right. Okay. Sure. Right. So, so what did that do for you? I mean, is, was this the impetus for the self-injury? I guess. I mean, I think it was so, so I didn't, I started cutting myself when I was a senior in high school and I was a very good rule follower all the way along, like the highest award in ninth grade. It was the last grade in the school at the church was the pastor's award. Um, and I won the pastor's award and yeah. So moving, so then after graduating ninth grade, then we go, you go back to public high school. Oh, okay. Um, so went to went to Davis High School. Ironically enough, the mascot for Davis is the Blue Devils. So um, <laughs> there were definitely some church members who were not thrilled with that. <laughs> so, and I played, uh, I was the starting quarterback on the football team. And I was, I suppose, relatively, you know, popular or whatever. But everyone knew that I went, I was a Christian and went to Grace Valley, you know. So it was the kind of thing where, in classes, sometimes people would be like, hey, you know, your church is a cult, right? And be like, oh, that does not compute with my brain, you know. But uh, I think getting toward the end of high school, football season was over, senior year, um, we weren't that good. <laughs> it was, I, I also ran track in the spring, but I think it was getting toward that end, getting toward a massive transition in life, you know, and in a community that, that, strongly encouraged people to stay put and go to UC Davis if you were going to go to college or go to one of the community colleges in the area, but like stay and serve God's kingdom here, you know? Now, why God's kingdom centered around a church in Davis, California with a, you know, total membership of 400 people, I don't know to this day, but that was the, that was the very, very strong encouragement. And I never really... I applied to some other schools, but I never, it was never, I never, it was never even in my brain that I would go somewhere else. You know, I, I sort of think of it like, uh, what are those like shock collars that you can buy for a dog? So like they stay within the edges of your property line. Right, right, right. <laughs> then it's like, if, if they wear it enough, it's yeah. like, no, th- well, why didn't you just leave? There's no fence. Right, you know? right, exactly. <laughs> but there's a, there's, there's, there's an invisible sense of, you know, right. And something that I couldn't have even put my finger on then, you know, but for whatever reason, I, uh, I started cutting my stomach just really lightly. I would get razor blades out of disposable razors and, uh, and, and cut my stomach. And I, I think, I think it definitely initially came from a place of, I knew that I wasn't supposed to use drugs. I wouldn't have even known where to get drugs, frankly, but I, and I, I knew I wasn't supposed to drink. Um, so those things were clearly sins, right? Sex, clearly a sin. So all very, uh, so, so whatever this behavior was that I had discovered was something that no one had told me was right and wrong. It didn't fit in to that. So I had access to it, uh, where I didn't have to feel guilty about it, you know, and I, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I'd still look back and I'm like, I just don't even remember being exposed to self-injury at all. I remember in a in the play that I wrote, there I, I do reference like the one time I remember seeing there was a guy on our football team who had two uh like crosses carved into his chest, uh scarred. And I and and someone had asked him, we were in the locker room and I had just overheard it in passing, and someone had asked him how that you know, 
what that was from. And he said he did it himself. And I remember thinking that was the weirdest fucking thing ever. Like, why the fuck would you do that to yourself? You know? So that was, and that was maybe a year or two previous, you know? So that was kind of the place I was coming from. So it wasn't like I I knew what self-injury was at all. Didn't even know the term. So I started, I started cutting my stomach and, and it was easy to hide. And then as the, as that, as senior year came to a close and I, I was like, even in public high school, it was like, I was a starting quarterback of the football team. I was one of the student speakers at graduation, but by the time graduation rolled around, I was, de- I was definitely starting to cut more and I was cutting in different places. I was, I, I had started to cut around my wrists um, and not really with any sort of, I don't think there was, it was nothing about it being suicidal, uh, about being suicidal. It was, I needed something more to happen. You know, I mean, I needed, I needed there to be more blood. And I, it's funny. I, I, much later when I was, when I was in it, when going in and out of treatment, my mom would say to me, Ben, you don't need to prove something to ask for help. You can just ask for help. You don't need to show something. But after growing up and the other thing, another thing with Grace Valley was the mental health was very much poo-pooed. I mean, it was basically like, if you sin less, you won't be depressed, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. So fucking work on it. I I found the opposite to be true. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Same. (laughs) Trial and error ever since. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, that doesn't check out. Yeah. One of the best things I, one of like the first things that really hit me when I was in treatment was... And I, I don't remember if it's part of DBT or not, but the idea of if you're feeling guilty about something you shouldn't feel guilty for, keep doing it until you stop feeling guilty about it. <laughs> you know, tr- <laughs> keep going in that direction. If you're having a response that doesn't, yeah, yeah, yeah change it. <laughs> you're yeah. like, no yeah. way. Yeah, right. And that's the kind of thing I would take and run with. But yeah, 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 exactly. So you, is that a common? desire to to bleed to have more like is that a common outcome of not outcome is that a common desire of someone who's doing self-injury or just that was to you for your I mean I, I can really only speak to my experience but uh it was I wouldn't say that I thought about that consciously like off the bat again I think it was one of these things that the practice changed it evolved and I think like a lot of other things, you need more of the thing mm-hmm, to get, to get a response. response. Yeah. So, and, and more of the thing could be the place on my body. If it's more visible, I'm going to get a bigger response. You know, I'm going to get a bigger rush. And, and, if, and if it's more serious and there's a sense of like fucking, you know, there's a sense of that, that competitive, that athletic kind of competitive side of it where it's like, I could do that, but I could, I could, I could do that. I did it that bad before. So if it, if it's not up to at least that, then like, come on, what the hell are we doing here? Why are you even, you know, talking to yourself? It's like, why are you even wasting my time? Right. Interesting. I didn't even, I didn't think of it from that perspective. So were people able to see when did people, when was the first time anyone noticed? So two things, the first time I ever cut myself, I do remember that. And that was, I I was like, I think I'd like masturbated and felt really guilty about it because that was not supposed to do that in the church. And uh, I was like, okay, so I cut a cross into my right palm 
And it was, I don't even have a scar from it. Your palms are pretty hardy, you know, but it was, it was like, okay, I need like a, I want a visual reminder. So I won't do that again. You know? So, so that was the first time I ever did it. Now, when I st- but when I started doing it regularly, cutting my stomach, it wasn't so much from that kind of punishment or like, I need a reminder about something place. It was much more of an experimental place. But to get back to your, your question, you know, I, I was living at home with my parents, obviously at the end of high school. And then when I, when I started college, I, w- I also lived at home through college as well. But at the end of high school, it was a couple weeks after uh, high school ended. Actually, it was the Monday after. So I had given the speech, we'd done grad night, it had been fun. And, uh, and the Monday after, I, I wrote a note that I suppose was a suicide note. I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think it's easy to label things in retrospect when they're a lot murkier at the time. And I got some razor blades and some candy and I drove to... Where did I end up? I think I, I, I was like, somehow ended up in the parking lot of the DMV. That'll make you want to kill yourself for right? sure. Right, I know, exactly. So, you know, it's like just, a, yeah, the desolate wilderness of the DMV. I mean, it's a little... <laughs> it's a bit on the nose, you know? Uh, <laughs> where, did, where did you find him? The DMV. Well, <laughs> yeah. I told him not right? to go. It's, what does God is, say about the yeah. DMV? <laughs> and, I, and I cut my wrist pretty bad. And then... I, uh, I didn't really know what to do. You know, I was, I was bleeding and, you know, I was bleeding onto my shorts and, um, and I kind of, I just like kind of drove around and parked at some other places. And then like a couple hours later, I, I just like, I, I had to pee really bad. <laughs> <laughs> Unexpected um, things that come up. Right. Like, and I was like, I can't, I was like, I, I'm going to have to get out of the car. Right. You know, (laughs) (laughs) so I was out on like the Davis is surrounded by a lot of agriculture and open fields and stuff. And I got out of the car and, and just like peed on the side of the road. And then it was for whatever reason, just clicked in my head. I was like, I I just need to go home. I I don't, I don't know, you know? And I I got home and, and my family, my parents didn't know where I'd been. I just kind of like left and it was the afternoon, but it was still like I was out of school and I just kind of disappeared. Um, I don't know. I don't think I had a cell phone at that point. I didn't get a cell phone until I think I started college, but, uh, my mom, I parked across the street and my mom came out of the house and she saw me and she came over to the car and I rolled down the window and she didn't see at first. And she was asking me where I'd been. And then she looked in and saw my wrist and, and, and my, and my shorts. And it's one of the very like vivid memories I have from, in my life. And she asked me if I was trying to kill myself. And I said, I didn't know. And, um, and I broke down crying and, uh, yeah. And she helped me back into the house and she cleaned it up and it was, it wasn't bad enough to where, um, I needed anything done other than it to be bandaged. And, and at that point, my mom obviously told my dad and then they made the decision that I should, I needed to go talk to the pastor. Cause that was always the first line. Of, right, right, right. He'll know. Unless you, you were going through something medically, again, the mental side of things, it's like, well, it's related to, you know, God can, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know, you know, but it was definitely like, that is the first step. 
And I, and I don't remember telling my dad this, but I told my dad, I guess before I was like, I know exactly what's going to happen there. He's going to like preach a sermon at me and that's going to be it. And it's funny that I, I look back and I'm like, wow, how did I, how did I sort of like have an awareness of, of what the experience was going to be? And yet, you know, we were, we were there for, you know, four more years. I think part of it is, I think the people watch documentaries about cults and stuff and they're like, well, why the fuck are you still there? Just leave. You know, how did you not just leave? And I, I, I really think that it's, you don't leave a place like that until something touches you personally enough that opens your eyes. And you were and, born into it. And I was born into it. And I wasn't going to leave on my own. I knew, I knew I had friends who left on their own and they were, their families disowned them, excommunicated from the church. And a lot of times, you know, when you lose a structure, it's no, the church would spin it as like, see that person went crazy when they left. And it's like, no, they lost their entire support system and didn't have anywhere to turn except shitty places. Right. Exactly. Um, so I went in and I went into this meeting. And so my dad took me over, me and my dad were there. The head pastor was there. And then there's like two other people in the room, you know, like one person like taking notes and like oh, the other no. associate pastor. And I'm like, Oh, great. You know? <laughs> uh, and it's like this very dark, his office is like very dark. It's like very much like that, uh, the office, Don Corleone's office in the first mm-hmm. scene of the Godfather, you mm-hmm. know, like that's mm-hmm. this like church office. Okay. okay. Where it's like this big wood desk and he's sitting there, you know, he's this, he's, he's this little Indian man. Um, not what I expected. Yeah. So it's also, so there's so, and he is like, he preached a little sermon to me, you know, he was like, how does this, do you know how this makes your parents feel basically, you know, when you do these things? And I'm like, yeah, not good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You're like, which and, the DMV was it? <laughs> right. Yeah. And he, he, the, the verses that he referenced in the Bible were, he referenced uh, from, I think Genesis four could have the chapter wrong, but it's from, from Cain and Abel's story. And God comes to Cain and says, cause Cain and Abel both bring sacrifices. God asked for like, for a sacrifice Cain brings the wrong sacrifice and God, and, and he's pissy about it because God didn't accept it. And God asks him, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Do you not know that sin is crouching at the door? It desires to have you, but you must master it. And that was the takeaway for me, I suppose. I don't really know. I, I suppose the message was you're on the doorstep of making bad decisions. Clearly, the reason you're here is one of them. So get your act together and, you know, be aware that the devil's there to, you know. So there was no, like, why did you do this? Not in that meeting. From that point, I was I was asked to meet with the senior associate pastor once a week um, at his house, like at six in the morning before I went to classes at UC Davis um, starting my freshman year. The first meeting he and I had was actually good. Yeah, like we actually had a genuine talk about why it had happened. But from that point, it turned into me memorizing large portions of the Bible and like reciting them to him in his living room at 6 a.m. And then like encouraging me to like, you need to start inviting people to church and sort of like demonstrating your faith that way. And at some point, and I was still cutting at this point, you know, I would roll in 
with gloves on. I mean, it was cold, but I would roll in with gloves on and my knuckles all, you know, torn up with burns or whatever I had done. So it was not making a difference. I was living at home. So my parents still, my my mom especially, very, very much on the pulse of what I was doing, whether I realized it or not, you know. So she was eventually was like to my dad, like, look, these meetings need to stop because they're not helpful. So that was cool because that was like one of the few times that, you know, it was like a situation where it was something the church wanted. And and my parents said, this is done. And at that point, I I... I saw my first therapist. So the real therapist, the, uh, not a real, but a real therapist. Yeah. Someone qualified to talk yeah. about the issues. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, and that's the thing that's such so ridiculous about a place like Grace Valley is they, they think they can deal with everything in house. Right. Right. I mean, there's so many places like that and we, we hear that all the time. And, you know, I think it's part of the stigma too around, these issues is that they are, you know, that it's not a physical, it's not a physical issue, right? It's my hope is that even in, even over time, because there is Christian counseling, right? Yeah. And I went to a Christian therapist that my first therapist was a Christian therapist. Right. So it's not like an impossible thing that someone would have a Christian therapist and they could have a Christian therapist in house. It's just those people specifically aren't trained and they're dealing with something very serious. Yeah. And if you're and if you're dealing even if you had a Christian therapist in a place like Grace Valley, the problem is it's going to be too filtered through the dogma that they want to rather than receiving the information from the client and responding to it. Right. So where was this this therapist? You know, I saw I saw one that just wasn't a good fit. And I, and then I, I, he was in, he was in in the Sacramento area. It was, it was pretty far away from, from my house, but it was, uh, but he was in the Sacramento area far enough away to where he'd never heard of Grace Valley, um, oh, which okay. was a good thing. And, uh, yeah, so I saw him for a few years. And what was different about that? It was I mean, my first experience going to therapy. So it's funny. Cause it's like, Ooh, therapy, you know, like I feel so fucked up. In a great way, you know, <laughs> like I've, I've, I've done something to warrant outside help. You right, know? right. I have graduated. So I didn't know, you know, it's like my only exposure to therapy was like Goodwill hunting where it's like, oh, cool. So it's like this odd combative relationship right. where eventually we'll meet in the middle and find right. an understanding, you right. know. And granted, I wasn't really equipped to talk about my life with a whole lot of candidness because of growing up in an environment where you're just editing yourself constantly. I shouldn't think that. I shouldn't feel that. I'm not going to say that because saying that is going to be entertaining a thought that could be sinful. But we actually, it was, it was a good relationship. He's actually, he was, you know, I I look back and I'm like, I wouldn't see a Christian therapist now, basically, because I'm not a professing Christian, but I look back and I'm like, he was, you know, he did his job as well as he could have done given the circumstances. And, uh, and he even said things to me where it was like, and I don't remember what precipitated it, but said things like, wow, that, that church sounds spiritually abusive. And I was like, wow, I'm not familiar with that term at all. You know, (laughs) was it, was, did that open up anything for you? I mean, you remember it, No, but no, no, but it was like this immediate, like I'm receiving information that is out of line with what I should be thinking. (laughs) And, you know. There, I mean, there were times always in Grace Valley, there were, and not always, but there were definitely times I remember when they were like, here's what to say if someone calls 
this place a cult kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and do I don't say? remember what they w- do. You remember what they would tell you to say? I, I don't remember, but I think it was more, I, I think, I mean, obviously I think that the take home was people are resistant to God's word, you know, so they'll do anything to tear down the truth. The devil's out there and he can use anyone to tear down, you know, the truth. It's a, per- it, I mean, at, at its, at its basis, it's a persecution complex. If someone's saying something negative about me, I'm being persecuted because I'm doing the right thing. And so by the time you get out to this, this person in kind of in the Sacramento area, what does your cutting look like? How regularly, like where, where is it in its progression? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause through college, it was off and on and there would be, there would be times when it would be really bad. And then there were stretches where I wouldn't do it at all. Uh, months, you know, um, and what did really bad look like? Really bad. Uh, good question. I'm trying to think, gosh, it's been a while with the college stuff, but I would just the size of, I started, um, burning myself. Cutting was the first thing I did. And then I, I started burning myself and I would, I, I figured out how to, you know, I w- the, the spaces of skin I was burning were getting bigger and the, and the burning was getting, the burning was getting deeper you know, um, and, and that sort of thing. And then again, the continued, this, you know, the slow march of things becoming more visible. I, I continued to act during college. And I remember it's like, I can place like certain, certain moments of self-injury with like, you know, cause I was had to be in dressing rooms with people. And at this point I was hiding everything. So I was wearing long sleeves all the time. And then I was hiding, um, the things that I was doing. So it was definitely, and I was hiding my scars. I wasn't comfortable with them at all. Very ashamed of of them. So I I remember a play that I was in my sophomore year of college. I know that I had burns on the inside of my upper arms, tri on my triceps, like matching burns that were that were pretty bad and really painful in the healing process. Um, but I remember having those and and needing to hide them, and then. Yeah. And then things started to move out to my arms and move down my arms and just get more prominent that way. I had a, um, so when I was using, I had a friend who, so I, I I did some self-injury, but it just wasn't my thing. I had drugs and alcohol. I wanted to see what it was about and it just, yeah. I mean, that was kind of who I was and, uh, no, totally, yeah. you know, was just, it's, people are doing this, got to try it. And I was like, yeah, that hurts. So a couple of times I thought, I know what I'm missing. I'm going to cut myself and pour the alcohol in it. See if I'll get drunk faster. That does not work. That hurts a lot. <laughs> just in case anyone was actually wondering, but I had a friend who I was very close to and we used, we used a lot of cocaine together and she, she was really into self-injury and a lot of like what you talked about. And, and one thing that I thought was interesting was when we were using, we would have these kits of whether it was straws and credit cards and razor blades. And we would have these, you know, these kits of things that we would go and we would get, we had this, you know, mirror that we used puff paint to like create our lines so we could do them while we were driving. Cause that was a good idea. And, um, <laughs> Because, like, God forbid we pull yeah. over. We're in such You've a rush. you got to keep yeah. on your schedule. Listen, you know, so. listen. We, were, we had places to be. <laughs> we're, we're 15 and going places. Yeah. So, You've got to so, be there on time. Yeah. I, don't, I didn't want to make anyone wait. So yeah. she had a kit. She had a self-harm kit. And, I, and it was one of those things where I just, we were so fucked up. 
Like, just, do you remember what the kit consisted of? I do because I remember thinking, and I not only do I remember what, it, but I remember being in the car and she had this little. I don't remember what it was in, but it had a razor blade, it had a lighter, it had a screwdriver, I think, or some sort of metal thing. And she had all these, you know, so like I had like my drug kit and she had, she had her drug kit in this thing. And we would go and we would pick up, I'll, I'll never forget being in a Safeway parking lot. We went and we picked up, you know, eight ball of cocaine. And I'm very excited about this. And she pulls out her self-harm kit and we're in, in the middle of the day. And, and I know, she, I know she, she's, she wears long sleeves. She's, she covered from head to toe in, and she pulls out her self-harm kit and bur- starts burning herself with, with the, the screwdriver. And I'm looking at her like, now, really? Like, like we just got an eight ball. What are you doing? Like that's do that. You know? And, and my whole, I never asked her about it. I never, you know, like I never, I mean, she was, she was fully like, she could never, there was no amount of scar surgery that could have ever done anything for her. Yeah. And, um, and I just remember over the year, like when I look back at that, I was so self-involved that it just was not part of the thing. But I just remember like she used that literally the way that I used drugs and alcohol and had the kit and had the whole thing. And there was, and and I just remember this sense of ease and calm. Like she, did she have any first aid stuff in her kit? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. She had like, she had the whole thing. It was all, it was all. And I just remember really thinking to my, like the few times that I had tried to, to self in, injure, it was like, ow, oh, this hurts. Okay. You know, it's just a very different experience for me. And hers yeah. was a sense of ease and comfort and calm. It was done as like an emergency situation. I don't know, like we need to do it now. There was no, and I could see, and I, I never really brought it up with her, but I could see the difference. I could see it for what it was as that coping mechanism that was so something was going on. And it was the first time and probably the last time that I've ever seen anything like that. And it stuck with me as, as a lesson for what this was that I don't, that my experience with it other than that has been not that. Yeah. I mean, it's a massive endorphin rush, you know, causing that much, that degree of pain just trigger it's triggers something in you. I mean, it's like runner's high, you know, you go for a run and you Not feel my that, experience, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I mean, people talk yeah. about that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same, but it's, uh, yeah. I mean that, that, that totally rings with me hundred percent. I feel like self-injury too often is grouped into, I mean, the conversations about it are not happening, let's be honest, at all, Um, which is funny to me because it's like, yes, yes, very slowly conversations around mental health are changing and getting better and more productive. And yet there are certain blind spots around issues that are that are self-injury being one of them that are that are hard to wrap your head around because it it, and the the, the portrayals in, in pop culture are not really changing that drastically, you know. But the uh, but it gets lumped into I do it, it. It's like, did you do it because you wanted to feel like I couldn't feel something and I wanted to feel anything? And it's like, or like, did you not feel pain? Did you not feel the pain? And I and and I don't I can't speak to anyone else's experience, but it's like, no, I feel the pain. The pain is part of the deal, you know. But it ta- but you're able to. It's reframed. It's not like I remember. I would I I tell the story in the play where. I remember I was, I was, I was in the room with my mom and my sister 
and we were at home and I got a paper cut and I winced and I was like, ow, like, ah, you know, and they're both looking at each other like, how is he wincing about a paper cut <laughs> with these big scar, you know, right, these big right, injuries? Right. And it's just a different right. context. It's all context. Right. It's all context. I think one of the, the best ways to think about it is that alcoholism and addiction are self-injury. They're self-injury. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I when I'm putting something up my you know nasal cavity that I know is injuring me, I am self-injuring. I'm getting a, a high from it, but I'm self-injuring. When I'm putting a needle in my arm, I'm self-injuring. These are forms of self-injury. Make no mistake. We it's an acceptable. The, the we basically decide that the outcome is better than the harm. I mean, right. That it's just a risk reward situation that we've decided. And, and as we progress, it gets crazier and crazier. And then at some point, you know, that, that it, it makes that shift, but it, it is self-injury. And one of the, I worked, um, I was a piercer and uh, I worked in a tattoo shop and let me tell you how many people come into a tattoo shop for self-injury and call it tat- being, I need to get tattooed. I cannot begin to tell you I'm stressed. I need to come in and get tattooed. Oh, I'm just, I've been needing, feeling the need to get tattooed. Not, I really would like this beautiful tattoo on my body. Beautiful piece of artwork. That right. Means so much to me. Right. Right. Like how I get tattooed and how these people got tattooed was very different. I was like, Oh, I hate this. Make it, you know, like it just, just like, it was something I had to go through to get to the other side. There was never, ever a moment where I was like, I would like to get tattooed. But I saw so many people come in with the need to get tattooed and then pick a piece of art after. And 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 that was a very and I would hear people saying, like, oh, I'm addicted to getting tattooed. Like, yeah, like not not to the tattoos themselves. Right. It's the process of it. Nope. And it had nothing to do with the tattoos themselves. In fact, they would I saw people come in and ask other people to pick their tattoo. I feel and like then, in a in a casual conversation, though, people could miss that. Yeah. It's a different thing, you know, you're addicted to tattoos. It's like, no, no, that's not what they said. (laughs) That's not right. And, and people did the same thing with piercings. Yeah. They would come in and get pierced, you know? And, and so I do think kind of what you said, which is, I think this is more prevalent. I think it's out there. I, I do. I think we have been able to, people have been able to frame it in a way that makes them feel less strange. Yeah. Do you think that Drugs and alcohol would have done for you what cutting did for you or self-injury rather? I don't, I, honestly, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, after I didn't, I didn't drink until I was 21. I was that good of a rule follower. And it was like, I'm not allowed to, not supposed to breaking the law. Also a sin. So when I, when I started to drink, it definitely is, is definitely something that, and I've, you know, read enough about self-injury that that obviously people, a lot of people, um, self-injure when they're, when they're, uh, on drugs or alcohol, but that's a co that can be a co-occurring thing. I think statistically, um, and I think it's referenced in that, that book that I, uh, that I sent you guys the link to that men, uh, who self-injure do it drunk more than women who self-injure statistically speaking. So it definitely was something that, cause it's definitely, I mean, alcohol, it lowers, lowers your inhibition. So it makes it easier, you know, to, to cross that, to just get over that first, that first, that was that natural resistance to attacking your own body. (laughs) Right. Do you, do you think there's any relation to picking a fight? You know, you're not, you're going to get the shit beat out of you. Like when you're drunk, just to like, want to have someone hit you, like, like. 
Uh, or is that just not? I don't know. I mean, I think that's kind of like what you what you were just talking about as far as like these sorts of things that are self injury, even if we've grouped them into different right. categories. Right. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, everybody. This is Ashley Lowe Blossom Game, the co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery and your host. Lion Rock Recovery has introduced a support meeting specifically for people struggling with anxiety related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Structured as an ongoing workshop, the COVID-19 anxiety support meeting will teach coping skills and be a place to share and connect with others also feeling the effects of this crisis. Everyone struggling with anxiety about COVID-19 is welcome. Let me repeat that. Everyone struggling with anxiety about COVID-19 is welcome. To view the meeting schedule and join a meeting in session, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com and click on the orange banner at the top of the page. You can't miss it. Together, we will learn to feel more centered and empowered in the face of this great challenge. And so, so at this time you know, you have the burns. Now you said you had them on both sides. So was there like, a, you had a method? Was it like, I have to be equal? I don't know if symmetry was a thing, but I definitely know that I've placed every single injury I've given myself very consciously. Okay. So that's part of it. Yeah. That's definitely been part of it for me. So, yeah. 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 So what, so as, as did you ever have a situation, did things get infected? Did you ever have situations where things went wrong? You, you took it too far? Like were I, I mean, honestly, nothing has ever gotten so infected that I, that I had to. Okay. Okay. So you never deal needed. With it. Yeah. I got, I've gotten stitches once and uh, yeah, I mean, probably needed stitches on some other things that just healed into some pretty ragged scars. Um so you're but I, excellent at wound care. I have gotten good at wound care and I figured out what's working in the first aid world and what <laughs> products should be discontinued. <laughs> um, I like to think of myself as a first aid tester. <laughs> exactly. Well, it is interesting. I, I do think there there is an element of self-injury where the the wound care and the healing process is very involved and the degree to which you choose to take care of something or not, it's a huge part of it. And I, I mean, there, there's something therapeutic about healing yourself, about taking care of something, you know? And then there's the whole, I mean, there's the, you know, extended metaphor of say you have a, 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 a big, a, a large um, injury, say a, a, a couple inch burn and you have to keep it covered and then you're you're covering it and keeping it covered with something like say paper tape right around the edges of the of whatever you're covering it with and so by the time that the wound itself is healing the area around it has become aggravated and torn up you know and your body's also focusing on healing the area so I, it's just really interesting to me because I, I think about it in the context of my healing process and then the support system around me getting torn up, my parents getting torn up, you know, but everyone in the, in the working toward a common goal, but it doesn't mean there's not, you know, ramifications and there's not, there's not collateral damage. Yeah. 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 That's absolutely true. Not, not, um, it's not linear. And, uh, yeah, I, I was, uh, making a face because when I went to uh, dance school in New York, when I was 15 and I branded myself, but not, not, not for, not for self-injury purposes, 
for like cool factor. Obviously. I still look at people who have branding from like uh, fraternities and I'm ever, I'm like, why would you do that to yourself? Meanwhile, I'm covered in burn. You're right, right. You know, I'm like, <laughs> oh God. That's amazing. <laughs> like, geez, that, oh. well, so no. So the best, this is like classic. I just, I don't know where the idea came from, but no one else was doing this. So like, oh, it's yeah. not even like a whole group of people. <laughs> But I didn't do it. it. Like the whole, the whole dance studio wasn't. Yeah, uh, no, no. no. Yeah. I, and I remember like not thinking this is like classic. Like I didn't think about like I had to wear like you have to wear all this stuff when you're doing ballet and all these tights and different things. And so like I didn't think about the tights placement. Oh, my God. You know, I didn't. It was not. It, it was like this circle, like star, like it was like a pentagram, but not. And I mean, the whole thing was just classic, like, you know, just one of those things, but I ended up with this brand and, uh, you know, and my mother gets a call <laughs> from the studio. Like, so Ashley branded herself and, um, she's like, I'm sorry, what, you know, just like another, you know, so I, I, anyway, I was thinking of like the healing process because I re- I remember thinking like, it's one thing in the moment I was willing to take the pain for the moment. Right. Because of the cool factor of, I don't know what, I did not like pretty much everything think through the fact that this was like a, this was a long-term project. <laughs> this was like, and, was and burns take a long, long time to heal. And it's a much messier process than a, a healing cut. Oh my you know? God. I had no idea what I was in for. So yeah. Yeah. It's not like when that's part of your thing, that that's a, it's very involved. Well, and, and it's not, not to say that like, yeah, I try to think of everything around it, but then they're still like, oh shit, I didn't think of that, of what I'm going to need to be doing or what, you know, where that placement exactly is. I have a burn on the, on the, in the space between your, um, your uh, index finger and thumb, but like on that side. Yeah. And I was like, this, it sounds like a good idea in the moment, you know, and that took so long to heal because it's a, it's a place that flexes, you know? So you don't even even like even though it was something I was doing regularly, it's not it's you know, you can't account for everything. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So so you one of the things that do you self censor on Instagram or are you censored? I'm censored heavily. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, sorry to go back to counseling, but like, how does that make you feel to be like? just a straight up picture of you, not, I think it, honestly, I think it's bullshit. And I don't, I think that part of the problem with Instagram's, um, I've only had Facebook doesn't seem to have rules about anything <laughs> compared to Instagram at this point, but Instagram, it's like part of me go, you know, when it happens, cause it's, and I don't know how it happens. I think that's one of the infuriating things. I think my understanding is that someone's flagging it a person or it's being, I don't know why, cause I, and I kept track of when Instagram announced that they were going to be removing self-injury stuff. And, and, and I don't have a problem with that in theory because I don't, people are, are entitled to their own opinions. I don't find it helpful to see pictures of open wounds. I think it's really triggering. I don't think it helps anyone else. I, I it's, if it's therapeutic to the person who's posting it, I can't really speak to that, but I, I don't think it's doing a service to anyone. I think people potentially have that opinion of some of the stuff that I post, but I, I really try to post things consciously. I never post things that are open. I only post scars and I try to post them in a, in a light that, um, 
yeah, that just doesn't play into the stereotypical, like, oh, I'm self-injuring, you yeah. know? Because... <laughs> um, like you That's can't hear the helpful. music with it. But I should be able to show my body if everyone else can show their ass on Instagram and not be censored, you know? Well, well that I, that was the thing. I, I remember I was looking through that and I'm like, that is, I mean, there were pictures of you having lunch. There were pictures of you, there were yeah. pictures of you just like a headshot, you know, or whatever. Like and there, there was a, there was a rash a few months ago where someone, someone went bananas on my profile and flagged like 50 things. And they're just pictures of you. Like, yeah, you know. and I think that the upsetting thing is that there's no recourse for the person who gets flagged, really. Like, yes, I, I've gotten a, most everything's been put back up, but there's no... And it makes sense to me, of course, like they don't want to tell me who's flagged me in case I'm a crazy person and then I'm like, yeah. you know, going yeah, yeah, after yeah. the person. And there are things that are legitimately flagged, but I think if my profile is being harassed by someone for whatever reason, I don't think that's okay. And I do think it's a detriment because I've I've definitely shifted how I talk about. I'm nervous when I post now, and I and I also choose not to use certain hashtags because I know that I, I limit the self injury and self harm hashtags I use, even though I know that they're potentially where I'm. You know, I, and the reason I continue to do it, I'm not reaching some incredibly wide <laughs> wide audience, but. But I, but you never know. And I think I go back to when I was a teenager and I'm like, Instagram and Facebook weren't really a thing, but I'm like, that's where people are communicating now. So if it's the easiest place to reach someone now, and I think, would it have stopped? Would I have stopped if I had seen someone talk about it in the sort of candid way that I choose to? And no, I don't know if I would have stopped, but I would have had more knowledge you, and I would have known, have known that people, where to go. Yeah. I, and I would have known something. You know, that wasn't that wasn't only, you know, stereotypical or negative or making you feel like it's taboo. I also take issue with Instagram's uh, their resources where they if you go to their resources thing, because I get a lot where it's like a friend has reached out and like, you know, is concerned about you. Uh, that that thing. And you're like and they're like, do you want more resources? So I've like followed the links to see what they're to see where it sends you. Cause I want to know what Instagram's thinking. And of course the conversation, it's like, Oh, this is where it's sort of like the, our structural conversations around mental health need to shift or our conversations need to shift on a structural level, not just on a things are taboo, but you follow their links and under suicide, self-injury is listed under the suicide tab. Oh, and wow. it's like, well, you've missed the point from square one. So, wow. you know, yeah, yeah. Um, so we're, we're not even really able to have a real conversation about it. Cause you're lump, you're lumping two things in that are stereotypically linked, but are not scientifically linked at all. And they're offering, you know, they're offering that as a, you know, as a, as a resource. So they don't want you to post about it. They're going to censor that, but they're not even offering the right resources. Yeah. I mean, you know, who's to say that you weren't in Afghanistan and you, I mean, you weren't, you know, a prisoner of war, you know, like, uh, you know, the, I guess it's sort of like, well, how do we choose to censor things and how much do we give people the opportunity to decide what they're not going to look at if it doesn't, if it bothers them, like for the love, just don't, go to, you know, or whatever. But I did notice that and did wanted to touch on that and see like, was that, you know, how, how that, because it's part of you sharing your message is very, you know, and I, I want to, you know, hear about how you've been able to get into recovery. 
but it's very important to talk about. And I mean, I found you with your hashtags and because you went on a podcast and, you know, we have, you know, 60,000 downloads all over the world. So it's not, it's not out of range of things that totally, yeah. you'd be able to touch a lot of people with this topic. Well, and every time I post, I get, or not every time, but when I post on days like Self-Injury Awareness Day, or I, because I, a lot of times I'll post things with quotes that aren't mine, but because I don't like writing things that I have no patience for bumper sticker solutions to mental health problems. I just don't. I just don't. It's because in the moment when shit's going down, it's not going to help. You know, I need someone to, I would rather have someone be real with me, you know? So it's like, I, and I don't want to be overly, I don't, I don't mean to be cynical at all. But when I take the time to post some, something in my own words, undoubtedly, I get at least, you know, one or two or three people reaching out with, you know, questions. Yeah. How do I deal with this? You know? Yeah. How, you know, so, so there is, there is, there, people are looking for answers. I think a big place uh, that you would be very useful is to parents as well. Yeah. Yeah. I bet that would be a very big um, resource for them. Yeah. So, and I've had, I definitely have had people cause I, I was, I was doing some writing for my, I keep in touch with my high school drama teacher and I've written a couple plays for her on commission, but then, so I've, I've kept in touch with some of my teachers from high school and they've definitely there have been moments when they've reached out and put me in touch with former students or asked about if they could pass my contact information to parents or um, that sort of thing. So, yeah. So take us through what happened. How how did you get to a place of recovery? What was, what what you went to, you said you went to a couple of treatment centers. What was the first time you went to treatment? So the, the summer after my um, junior year of college, we left Grace Valley. My brother had uh, told my parents that that he'd been molested by a family friend of ours in in the church, not a person in leadership, but by a friend of ours. And that's what I to go back to what we were talking about earlier. That's what I mean, where something has to touch you personally to take you out of a cult. You know, you don't reason your way out of it on and like, oh, I've really studied the Bible on my own and, you know, (laughs) found that my beliefs don't line up with yours. It's like, no, some shit went down and your eyes open my parents were told the church leaders, like, we need to leave. And the short version is they said no. Why did they need to leave the church? Because there was a bad apple in it. Like, how did they, do you know what I mean? Like, how did, how did you know, that? I, I think that there was a great question. Cause I think there were a lot of, obviously my telling of this story is not including just kind of like the rising tide of like, you know, not being happy there with, with, shit getting more intense there. There was like a revival over the summer where they really circled the wagons. A couple of my siblings really got thrown under the bus for stuff that they'd been doing and kind of raked over the coals fairly publicly in the church. Um, my parents were, you know, basically told they were bad parents. Uh, my, my parents led the college ministry for years. They were forced out of the leadership role. There was a lot okay, in the a context lot went on. of it. And, and then also my parents didn't want to go to church with the person who'd molested their kid and act like everything was okay. Cause that person was part of a family who was prominent in the church. They were some of our oldest friends and all, everyone was members of the church. And if you're just going to say that you don't, so, so they, they hid behind their, uh, the church hid behind their, their confession privilege or whatever to not need to report because the guy had told them you know, so then it's like, oh, it's a confession. So they don't have to report a confession to police. 
Is that true? Um, I, there, there is a degree of confidentiality that religious leaders have in the context of a confession. They don't have to report it, but you, but your parents could have reported it, right? And and my brother did. You know, it was a it was an extended process, um, and that's a whole other story. But the version as it relates to this conversation is. My parents said, we're leaving the church. I I was doing a theater apprenticeship back east the whole summer. I get home and they're like, we're leaving. And it was, I was like, just like that, you know, because it was like one of those, one of those things you dream about that is never going to happen. It's like having a dream where you're flying. It was that level of outlandish. And then we were out. Um, But in the process, we were immediately excommunicated, which on and on its own note is funny to me because that's really not how excommunication works. It's like excommunication is kicking people out of a church who still want to be there. It's like, <laughs> no, we're gone. Thank you. Right, you right, know? right. <laughs> right, right. But they always did this. Whenever someone would leave, they would excommunicate them, have like a ceremony, basically. They'd label these, you know, people who left, it's like people, you went crazy or like you're like doing, you, you, you know, you're like children of the devil if you leave. So that was our whole friend group. That was everyone we knew. We left and I, I, you know, we lost everyone. It was, and Davis is a, it's a, it's a big, I mean, it's a college town. So there's enough people there, but it's small enough to where, you know, you run into people in the grocery store and they turn the other way, you know, see through you, you know, don't even acknowledge that you exist. The girl I was dating at the time, my first girlfriend, she and I, uh, she was not from Davis, but she had come to UC Davis and was a Christian and had joined the college ministry. And we'd met that way. And she'd become a member of the church. But she was living with some people in an apartment who I'd grown up with. Um, and I was like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if they like shunned us like in the apartment? And then they they did it. They wouldn't talk to us like in the apartment. I was like, I knew it was crazy, but this shit is bananas. Like you're like, hey, and they don't respond. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm talking to you. So it's, uh, and it's something that, I mean, that's the kind of side of it that I've continued to, I don't really know that I've ever taken full stock of what it meant, the impact it had to lose everyone that, you know, but, uh, at that point I, I finished college and, and I actually had a good senior year as far as like, I, I wasn't cutting for a significant part of it because the summer when I went away to the theater apprenticeship, I was around people I didn't know. I'd never met. I hadn't cut for a while. So I took it as an opportunity to wear short sleeves around people for the first time. How'd that go? It was very, very nerve wracking. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And it was just like, you know, paralyzingly nerve wracking, but I did it because I was like, I just, they don't know me. So I can, I can start fresh and I can, you know, I can have that be a part of my past rather than be assumed that I'm, you know, doing shit that's weird (laughs) by people, you know? So that was amazing. Senior year, I, I got out. And then getting out of college, much like getting out of high school, was a really, really hard transition. I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. I, w- I was acting in plays in, in the Sacramento area. My girlfriend and I, in the church, we weren't allowed to date until we were in college. So this was like my first girlfriend who, who I'd gotten together with sophomore year of college, and we dated for three and a half years. I broke up with her about uh, six months out of being out of college. I think anyway, so, so things were shifting in a lot of ways. I was out of my first relationship. I was out of school. I was acting in Sacramento. I was still living at home. I didn't, I didn't have a job. And I was just kind of like, I didn't know how to do what I wanted to do. And I couldn't even have told you what it was I wanted to do. I, uh, and then things were starting to get 
self-injury was sort of reasserting itself again at that point, getting fairly prominent. I was also convinced that I, I was, I had been, when I was fa- saw that first therapist, I, I started taking medication for the first time. I was on Wellbutrin for a number of years. And I, at that point, I was like convinced that it wasn't really making a difference. And um, so, but I, but I told my mom that I didn't want to see a therapist again right now. Like I wanted to do something different. So we're out of the church. So I wouldn't, I wasn't even interested in seeing a, a Christian therapist. I wasn't interested in going back to him. And I was like, I just, I just needed something else. So my mom called our insurance because, you know, with, I mean, I've, I still feel like with mental health, it's like everyone kind of has to reinvent the wheel themselves. There's very few resources to, to help you figure out what to do when. So she called insurance and they were like, oh, this, you know, they recommended an outpatient program that was covered by covered and uh, was in Sacramento. And uh, yeah, so I started going to this outpatient program. And I had no idea what to expect. It was, you know, five days a week, like a full day each day. I'd never done anything like this in my life. And I walk in the first day and it's me and like 12, 12 women, most of whom were significantly older than me. And I was like, turned around and walked down the hall to the nurse's office, the program nurse. And I was like, so I, I think I'm in the wrong place. Uh, <laughs> Don't know if this is for me. Right. And she was like, just give it a couple of days. So yeah, so that was where I was first introduced to things like dialectical behavioral therapy. And it all went over my head at the time. Most of it, some of it pinged because it is very practical, but a lot of it, it was like, so, you know, you weren't seeing a therapist in the group. It was, it was or in the, in the program, it was, it was groups all day and it was stuff anywhere from medication education. It's like, that was the, that was the group I walked in on my first day was medication education. And they're talking about like fucking serotonin moving from one neuron to another. And I'm like, I, I don't know about, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here, but it exposed me to, to things that I, that I wasn't aware of like DBT and that sort of thing. But at the same time, it would, there, there was, while it was structured, you know, you're just kind of on your own. And uh, I was still, I was still self-injuring. I was self-injuring. I was hurting myself on breaks in the program. Oh, wow. Okay. And, you know, it's one of those things that, right, I was there, I think, three weeks maybe total. But it, it feel, uh, in, re- in retrospect, it feels like I was there a lot longer because it did start on such a note of like hope and positivity and like something right. new. This and, like going to be it. This is going to be it. Okay, they're giving me prescriptions. Do I need Xanax? I don't know. What is that? You know, great. You know, so I got put on, right. Yeah, so I got put on <laughs> Prozac, Xanax, and something else, like right away. Um, you put you on Xanax? They gave me the prescription. Yeah, yeah. Because. Man, I, I went to the wrong outpatient. Right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they, uh, so, but it did start on such a note of optimism. But very quickly, ground down, you know, into, into feeling like, I don't know. I don't know. I would just, it clearly wasn't meeting my needs, whatever I was feeling. Cause I was, you know, I was burning. I, I burned the top of my, the back of my hand, like all the way across it with a, I had a fork that I would use that I would heat up and I would burn, I burned across the, across the back of my hand. So very, very obvious. And it was almost like, asking people to yeah, ask me right ask and me, again ask me i driving. do and yeah it's funny it's i i, I do take issue uh, people people pejoratively lump self-injury under the heading oh 
they're doing it because they're seeking attention. It's attention-seeking behavior. And I've come a long way, in my opinion, of that to the point where I'm like, well, yeah, no shit, it's attention-seeking behavior. Maybe you should give him some fucking attention, you know? Um, I mean, it's I've seen it be both, right? Like, where it's right? like, it's yeah. like they're doing everything they can to not have you see it. You happen to find it. Like that's exactly. not attention. Yeah. Scene. Yeah. And if it is out there and, and you're, and you're saying and that you're as a negative, it. maybe yeah. fucking think about how you're viewing it, not about right. what you think they're doing it for. Right. If it's got your attention, maybe look into it a little bit right. rather than just passing it off, you know? Right, right. But yeah, I think there was an element of like, see me, see me. Because we're in these groups, but I'm, I, you don't, I, you know, I didn't feel seen. Yeah. You know, and uh, in retrospect. And so, uh, you know, I, I ended up one day bringing a razor blade, a a bandage. I had my little like kit, like in my shirt pocket. I had a razor blade, I had a bandage, and I had a Xanax. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, sometimes you got to party and outpatient, right? Right. And so, and so it was like that sensation of waiting, looking for something to set me off. Right. Okay. Looking for something to take me down, you know? So we were in like a small group and you're just hearing people's, you're hearing, you know, you're just hearing a lot of rough stuff from people. And how can other people's stories not affect you emotionally? And I I just remember just getting just pretty depressed, you know, just listening to people's really sad (laughs) stories about their lives and real shit, you know? And I went to the bathroom, I locked myself in the bathroom and I cut myself on my, on my stomach, on my like abdomen, like, and it was, and it was, and, and it had gotten to the point where when I was, when I was cutting myself, I was, I was cutting and then I was going back into the open wound and continuing to cut within the same wound. So that was like another graduated step where the, where the burning became, oh, if I burn myself once, the fun thing about that is you can burn over the same spot, but now you've already burned the nerve endings off so you can hold it, you know? You can do more damage. So it was that sort of thing that like, and so I was like, but then of course the body eventually reacts, right? So I was in the bathroom and then it was like, not so much reacting to the pain as reacting to like, ooh, something's, you know, that was bad enough where it was like the blood wasn't stopping, you know? So I put the bandage on and I like buttoned my shirt back up and I was like, all right, you know, power of positive thinking, (laughs) head back back to the group because they're going to be missing me in a minute. And I walked into the group and I almost remember this in like slow motion where I was wearing a button down uh, shirt. So it was, but it was untucked. So it was hanging, hanging loose. And I had the bandage on, but I saw a drop of blood come out of my shirt. Oh no. And hit the floor. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit. <laughs> and I like stepped on it. I was like in a movie, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. like covered it. Um, Cause yeah. the room was full of people already, but everyone was just getting back from break. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck, this is not going to go well. So I, I got out of the room without anybody noticing, which, which I am honestly very grateful for. And I made it down to the, the psychiatrist's office and, and told him what I'd done. And he, you know, looked like deer in the headlights. Like he didn't know what, what I was sa- wasn't computing what I was right. saying. Right. You know? right. So I was taken to the ER. And uh, though a, a very vivid memory was I was on the floor of the nurse's office and she was like applying pressure to the wound um, in, in the program and waiting for the EMTs to get there. And they get there and, you know, I'm like having the, it's, you know, a pretty profound experience. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you're the, sober the, for it. The EMT pulls the gauze away and he's like, oh yeah, that's not bad. And I just had this very profound, like sinking feeling, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, 
Oh yeah. Oh. Uh, like just, seriously? Yeah. Right. Come on, man. You know, it was like go big or go home, and I had fucked it up. You know, but shit's already in motion. They have to send you to the emergency room, and from the emergency room, basically, they do the psych eval, and they found a bed for me. Hours upon hours upon hours later, and I was taken to the inpatient program, and from there. It was kind of one of those situations was just kind of, I think after growing up in such a heavily regulated environment of like rules and like keeping my shit together. And it was like, if I'm here, then, you know, fuck it. It was, it was the first time I think I really like just let go. They put me on a lot more medication and I was just, I don't, I, I was reacting poorly to Prozac. And then I was on, they switched the Xanax to Clonopin. And so it's just like, my inhibition level was very low, you know, and you're in an environment where if you hurt yourself, you're going to get an immediate response. So it just got bad, you know? I mean, I, 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 my mom remembers that time that I was inpatient, in and out of inpatient as the worst time of her life. I remember being high, you know, and it being kind of fun um, and very stressful in its own right. I think it's unfair to not honor the, the degree of stress I was living with at the same time. But I, you know, I was, and it had gotten like, you know, to the, you, you don't have implements to hurt yourself or they're harder to come by. So I was like just banging my head against the bathroom floor, just like to the point where it was just like opening my face up, you know? Yeah. And, and, and so, but, but, you know, somehow it's like, again, I like rallied. You're in, I was, I was there, I was on, I was put in on a 72 hour hold, but they reevaluated and I was there for like 14 days. But I, you know, you rally, I rallied and I like got my shit back together and, and I got out. And then within a week, I was within uh, like two weeks, I was back in. And that time I like, I asked to go back. And from that point, I, 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 I've lost like two weeks of time. I don't remember them at all. I was on, they had put me on lithium at that point as well. Man, they were, um, they were throwing it all at you, just trying to figure out what would work. Yeah. And it's funny. I, you know, I, I, it's like, I feel like a lot of times I talk about it, I, I come off as like heavily critical of these inpatient environments. But I think it was a, I am critical on certain levels, but but I, I do think it was a bit of a perfect storm where we didn't know what to ask for. My parents didn't know what to ask for. And these places, their goal is to keep you alive. I'm alive. So, you know, they don't have any other solutions. So what, I mean, they're, it's such a short time that you're there, you know, in the, in the grand scheme that there, there is no time to get you off your medication, get to know you, like find out what's really going on, you know? So I, I lost a, a, you know, a significant amount of time and, and my parents were doing, you know, furious research and trying to find out what to do. The, the, you know, social worker tells my parents that they think I'm on the verge of a psychotic break. Well, my mom's like, are, so what are, what solutions are we coming up with? And they had nothing. They came back with nothing. And again, critical of that. Yes. At the same time, I've seen the stacks of case files they're walking through with, you know, how do you, how can you even address people's, con, the minutia of people's, you know, experiences and concerns and needs? When you're, when you're saddled with that much stuff. And then for the psychiatrists who work those places, they're working their own practice. They're working at other facilities. They're seeing you for 10 minutes once a week, you know? So it's, again, it's a bit of a perfect storm, but, but somehow in, in all her research, my mom somehow gets a phone call from a guy that she didn't even know and didn't know how she was in touch with him, who 
who tells her about um, the Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. And I think the big trouble for my mom in, in her research and for both my parents was that it's there's very few if you're there's not a lot of self injury mm-hmm. centered that really get it. They there. take that people. really get it. They take people. They'll take people who do it, but I they it's not a lot of people who specialize. Exactly. Exactly. So for whatever reason, it seemed like a good fit. And yeah, I was in Houston, Texas for like over a month and a half in there. And it was the first time that I was in treatment with people my own age on the unit that was like 19 to 30 years old or whatever, something like that. And people, you know, so dealing with similar life points in their life, you know, even if it's a massive variety of experiences. So that was like the first big turning point to finding some level of recovery. I do think I would um, be remiss if I didn't touch on the financial burden. And I look back and I mean, I I don't even know the total extent of the lengths my parents went to and strapped themselves financially. A lot, a lot, a lot. And I, I think about the context of in one sense, it's like what a. I, I mean, I I I step back from it now, and I think about I was privileged enough to be able to have parents who could strap themselves financially and do it. And I think about everyone the the the, the, the so many people who who aren't even in the position to do that, and how our mental health system does not serve them. You know, if they have to do that to get me the care that ultimately made the difference. It's like, fuck, man. It's intense. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that. I feel like feel like so many times we talk about recovery and treatment and sounds amazing. And the help that's there in, in good places are amazing, but good help takes time. And the one thing that time takes more than anything else is a fuck ton of money. So yeah. it's an ugly truth about the system and and you know there are people who are able to do it in other ways. You know, that I think the more understood and accepted an issue is, the better the, the sort of general care is for it. And particularly with self-injury, I mean, that is just not something that the general care is going to be able to, I mean, it's just not. And, and, you know, and then also with general care, when you're looking at things like schizophrenia or schizoaffective, you know, it's going to be a medication, you know, there's, there's just going to be very, there's going to be, you know, accepted standards of care for things and kind of where you were like, I wasn't being seen Yeah, because you're one of that group. Like you are, yeah. you know, there's no time to see individual people. There's a time to create a standard of care. True. Yeah. And, and that, that is, um, that's the scary thing, particularly with self-injury or any sort of things that feel fringe to people. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's one of the reasons I'm so grateful that yeah, you had, you guys had me on today was, uh, I think, you know, I do think converse and I'm no sure you believe, you know, it's like conversations like this matter to, to shifting, even if it's very slowly how we view standards of care and things like that. And what is, yeah. 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 So when you get into self-injury recovery, what does that look like? Did you pick a date? Um, do you have a date? The last self in- like how? You know, there was a long time when I was, when I would count days and would keep track. And for whatever reason, it, it just never really served me that well. I, uh, I mean, I, I, and I think part of it was just growing up in Grace Valley where it's like, I would count days. I would, I would have to keep track of like, 
how many days I didn't masturbate, you know? So like, it's very like, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard for me to, to, I I haven't found it to be a, a useful thing for me. I think the, you know, I was in Houston and then I was, I I ended up coming down to Los Angeles uh, for a step down program. It's called the Optimum Performance Institute. And I had no idea what a step down program was. And I was like, I don't need that. I'm an adult. Um, And it's like, well, no, you've got, yes, sure. And it's like in Houston, it was like the first time when I really started to shift my mentality around a lot of things and shift toward, you know, a forward facing direction in my life. And, uh, and so, yeah, the, the step down program, being able to integrate these sort of new coping mechanisms, ways of thinking into, yeah, becoming a living, a living, a crafting a independent life that works, you know, for me and that I loved and wasn't relying on these past coping mechanisms. So I think if I had to point to any date, I mean, I think moving down to Los Angeles was a dramatic shift in my, that was like the big, big life change. That being said, I still have, and I've still been back in inpatient before I ended up back in inpatient in 2013. So it, it, it's not been without its, uh, you know, ups and downs. That's for sure. Did you want to go to, was it a, did you, were you like, I need to go back? No, I, uh, it was, I was out of the program. I was in that program in LA for, for four months. I moved into my own apartment. Um, I wrote that play. I got my first like real job down here, which is actually still the job I have. I do closed captioning for live TV. So I was, you know, gainfully employed, but I, I dated a girl right when I moved down to LA and that relationship, she had, she had broken up with me, um, about a year after, after we started dating and we started dating pretty soon after I got out of the program in LA. So, so I was, I was sort of newly single in Los Angeles and, and basically I had my leftover medication lying around and I took all the medication and, uh, yeah, ended up in the, in the emergency room and then in, and then an inpatient in LA. And that was definitely a, you know, blast. It was just like, what am I doing back here again? You know, right. It's a different city, different life, it seemed, you know, and yet here I am. There you are. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. And yeah, I mean, to, to answer your question, I, I don't, I haven't really, I don't keep a date and I don't keep track of days. And I, and I still, I mean, from time to time, it's, it is my grooved, long grooved, um, coping mechanism, negative though it may be for coping with stress. So I would be lying if I said there aren't times where, self-injury pops up as the impulse and occasionally as the, um, as something that I, that I still struggle with. What are your, you know, is there something specific that you do or are there people that you call or do you have a recovery community? There are people who I can be candid with. Um, I'm actually, I'm dating now and I've been in a relationship for close to two years now. And we, just moved in together in the past six months. First person I've ever lived with. So that's uh, exciting. And my parents provided this and my girlfriend who I'm with now provides this. There's a sense of, and I, 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 of unconditional love. No, it's not a condoning of something that makes them upset or that's physically not good for me, <laughs> you know, but there's a sense of non-judgment. I've also in the past year started seeing a therapist for the first time in in a few years. I hadn't been seeing anyone 
And that's been an interesting experience because it's my first, I've been my first time in seeing a therapist, not in like a state of crisis. Right. right. So I remember the first session I was like, yeah, so this is, this is weird. And so I think the, the work for me at that point was to not, was to trust that I didn't need to manufacture a crisis in order to be heard. Again, I think a lot of it goes back to, yeah, I mean, my mom telling me and, and growing up in an environment where it was like mental health being poo-pooed and, and written off. And, and then, you know, being, you know, my, my parents telling me, look, you don't need to show, you don't need to have physical evidence of the problem to, to ask for help. You can ask for help. Not saying that it's easy to ask for help. But it's there. It's, it's an option. It's there. And continuing to hear that, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's okay to ask for help. What does your life look like today in terms of helping? Like, I know you do a bunch of stuff to help with reduce stigma around this topic. Like, could you tell us a little bit about what those things are? And are there more things that you want to do with that? Yeah, I guess the first big thing I did coming out of treatment in LA was I wrote a play and produced it. It's a solo play. And it's my story, basically, from growing up in the church all the way through moving to LA. And and it's pretty I think the best thing about it now, looking back, because I wrote it in 2012, the best thing about it now is that I it captured the way I thought about self-injury at the time that I wouldn't, my my thinking has shifted so dramatically. Mm. Oh, interesting. You know, but yeah. I think it's really important to have those sort of like primary source documents about how we thought of things. So I don't lose sight of how I viewed something and polish it over, you know? I feel like in recovery, I've, you know, I continue to try to be more articulate about the things I've struggled with, but I, I try to be aware of not, yeah, shining it to such a high polish that it's uh, <laughs> unrealistic. Yeah, so I did that. I, I, I've really tried to take advantage of the, you know, advent of, of social media and its ubiquity and, and posting about, about self-injury and posting about, you know, being unashamed to post my scars. I, the main reason, the main basic reason I, I continue to do that, despite whatever censorship pops up, is that it's, it's, there were so many years that I spent that I was so ashamed of my body and of what was on my body, just crippling, you know, long sleeves. I remember I was down in visiting my aunt and uncle. And I, uh, I was in college at the time. And I, I, w- I went out to Pismo Beach by myself. And I was swimming and my scars were all like purple from the cold, you know, just like dark. And, you know, at the time, I just felt like they were gross, you know. And I remember there's a story in the Bible, and this is also in the play, but there's a story in the Bible about this guy who has leprosy. And he goes to this prophet and the prophet tells him to dip himself in the river seven times and he'll be clean. And I remember physically doing that in the ocean, like dunking myself. And we were still in the church at the time, I think. And I remember praying like to the sky, like on this seventh time, you know, to have my scars gone. And of course they were still there (laughs) when I came up the last time. But I, I, I think back to times like that, because I'm so comfortable now, to the for the most part, with with my body and with my scars, and I've um, and it's been a hard one, you know, sense of self, you know, comfort in 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 my appearance. But uh, I really work hard to not take it for granted. And those are some of the main questions I get regularly from people who are like, "I'm really ashamed," and it's a hard question to answer. You know, well, don't be ashamed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> totally. How, how do I? You know, what do I do? you know, I've struggled with this for years. What do I do? And I, and I don't have a lot of like, again, I just, I don't think bumper stickers are helpful. So I just like, again, that's one of the reasons I post. Cause I feel like it's, 
it's a it's not a direct it's an indirect way of encouraging like a, a level of acceptance because if 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 self acceptance can be if I can model a degree of of, of honest self acceptance then maybe that can you know speak to something. What do you do? People come up and ask you about your scars and when they when and if they do, what do you say? So the number one place I get asked is in the grocery store checkout line by the checker because, and I understand it, all they're doing all day is standing and, and, and talking to people and making small talk for a space of like 15 to 30 seconds, <laughs> you know, you know, so, so it's, uh, and people don't guess that it's self-injury just for whatever reason by how my scars look. So they're looking at your hand, right? Well, they're looking at that because I'll wear short sleeves and I have scars all the way up and down my arms. It doesn't look like, like I would think if I saw your hand, I would think like abscess that got infected or. Yeah, so so people don't, I mean, because my scars don't, for the most part, the real, the more stereotypical looking, you know, lines across have for the most part faded or it was never really my thing so much. I moved pretty quickly into bigger things. So it's, it's more prominent, like, yeah, like those like melty looking burn scars that people think I was in an accident. I have gotten asked if I was a veteran. I was like, oh no, don't, I feel bad. You know, it's like, someone's like trying to be nice. And I'm like, no, I'm not, you know, but yeah, most often I get asked in the grocery store's checkout line. And most often people guess I was in a, a motorcycle accident or something um, or a car crash. And for the most part, I will answer honestly. And I'll say, I, you know, I actually struggled with self-injury with cutting and burning myself for a number of years. And more often than not, people feel really bad that they asked. And so I try to keep the conversation going. If it was an honest question, I try to give an honest answer. And if they apologize, I say, for the most part, my response is something to the effect of, it's totally fine. I wouldn't wear, sh- wear short sleeves if I wasn't comfortable asking. And, you know, and occasionally it's like, I'm, I'm happy you asked. And like, I don't mind at all. And the only times I won't entertain it is if someone's clearly not asking because they're actually interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that could be, be just me reading tone, trying to read tone. And, but, uh, and sometimes I'm just not in the mood, you know, for the most part, I'm not self-conscious, but there, but I, but there are times when I still am you know, and that's just part of it. Like, I think this, I think the, I think the mistake would be to, on social media would be to portray it. Like I, like I'm, you know, just totally liberated and you know, perfectly <laughs> right. in touch with what I've been through. Where it's like, no, there are times when I look in the mirror and don't like what I see, you know, and I think being able to say those things still is, is just as important as being able to tell the story of, 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 of being in a place of recovery and being in a healthy place, you know? Totally agree. Totally. I mean, there there are times where I, you know, <laughs> I think of my story being out there. Or I, I, I like there's so much information about me out there, and 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 I get like there are moments where I get really self conscious about it, and even you know that people are going to judge me, that that they're going to judge all the thing, you know, whatever it is, like whatever the story I say, tell myself is, even having you know, well over a decade of recovery. And I think, I think that's just part of it. You know, you do stuff. It's there's uh, particularly with, with coping mechanisms that you can see on your body, right? Like I, I struggle with, uh, with, um, you know, binge eating. And, and so like, if I'm gaining weight, like people can see that. And there's a feeling of being very naked and being very exposed and, 
you know, when I was drinking and using for the most part, at least in my, (laughs) my perception, you know, I didn't feel like everybody knew exactly what was going on. I didn't wear my issues on my sleeve, so to speak. And, and with stuff where you're, where it's related to your body and your people can see that stuff, it's very exposing. It's very uncomfortable. And I often think to myself, like, ah, I'd rather have the one where, right you know, you know yeah. like we got it like totally. this is just I'd, I'd rather have the one where you just know nothing because oh, right. it's just like i don't i don't need everybody has issues why do you have to be able to visibly see totally that? well no and people say it to me and 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 it's true they're like you know it's a, as like a reassuring thing i know where it's like you know like well everyone has scars and yours just happen to be visible and i'm like right. yeah no fucking shit <laughs> you know you're what like, I mean? you're like right that's the part that we're <laughs> that's talking the part that's you know driving <laughs> yeah. me up the wall right yeah. exactly that's, that's actually the catch. yeah <laughs> It's so true. It's so yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you're, I, I, I love what you're doing. I love that you're talking about this. I love that you're, I love that you're willing to show your body and show your scars and show the range of emotion that come with it. Um, you know, make it into art, make it in, you know, with the play and come and talk about it. I think it's really important. And, you know, the perfect example is like, I work in the mental health field, have for over a decade and I did not know that it's 60, 40 male, female. I didn't know that. I, I, uh, I, yeah, that 60, 40, uh, female, 60, male, 40. Right. Sorry. Yes. That. yeah. I did not know that that, I didn't know it was that close. I figured it was closer than I, than we knew about, but that, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty close. And, uh, and I know that, um, this is the same thing and something that I'm also going to explore with eating disorders with men, you know, a bulimia with men and eating disorders with men. These are things, um, I, ha- I had someone come on and talk about sexual assault with men. Like these are things that aren't talked about and they drive a lot of behavior. And, and I just think it's so important to have role models come model the behavior of like, yeah, this is what it is. This is how I deal with it. Here's how I answer it. And I can live a normal life. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I just I think it's awesome and um, super grateful for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been uh, a blast. So yeah, where can people get in touch with you or find you or what's the uh, easiest way to get in touch with me is is on Instagram. Um, okay, it's my handles the my first initial and my last name. It's B Morosky B M O R O S K I. Awesome and. Uh, anyone who's interested, we are going to post uh, a bunch of resources in the show notes, uh, including, including Ben's contact information on Instagram, and then uh, some books and some journals about this topic. So please reach out and uh, check out the show notes. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.